0: I was aware that this this morning's service was going to be full, and so I want to um, honor that up here this morning. I've only got 16 points for us instead of 17 Um, jokes. Where is my Bible? So let's get get right into it. As you know, we are reading uh, and going through the Psalms this summer, and as we um, um, do that, We're just taking them one at a time. So we started with Psalm 1 two weeks ago. Psalm 2 was last week. And this uh, this morning we're in Psalm 3. So if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Psalms. It's the Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word this morning. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around arise o lord save me o my god for you strike all my enemies on the cheek you break the teeth of the wicked salvation belongs to the lord your blessing be on your people selah let me pray and ask god to teach us his word this morning Heavenly Father, I pray now that you would do a miracle, and by miracle that you would soften our hearts this morning, that we would have our eyes opened and our ears opened, that we may see and hear things otherwise we couldn't, that you would teach us now, you would change us more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, continuing in our summer series in the Psalms, we've looked at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, as I said earlier. And Psalm 1 being a gateway to the Psalter, as we talked about, reminding us that it is the work of Christ that we stand on in order to find ourselves in those last two verses as those being able to be found in the congregation of the righteous. And then last week in Psalm 2, we were reminded that Jesus, God's anointed, reigns. He is the king that he has set on his hill. So Psalm 3 comes to us as the the first psalm, one, with a title, uh, but but two, it is David, the first psalm we have recorded by David. And, And in one sense, it is the first psalm, if you consider Psalm 1 and 2 somewhat of an introduction to the Psalter. Not everybody does. But I say that because... It's interesting to me that as we get to this place in the Psalter, what is the first psalm that we come to if you consider 1 and 2 an in introduction? Of all the different types of psalms, psalms of praise, thanksgiving, all of those types of psalms. What we have here is a psalm of lament. It's the very first one in that sense that we come to. Why would a lament be one of the first types of psalms in the Bible? And the short answer is because grief and sorrow are among the most common of human experiences. And the Bible acknowledges this. If you remember, the Psalms are a window into the bright lights and dark corners of the soul. Far from painting a rosy picture about life and the human experience, the Bible depicts what's real. What's real in this life. Because of sin and sin's effects, And that's what Psalm 3 does as a lament. A lament, as you might remember from our Second or our Life of David series, is an expression of grief or sorrow over something or someone. It is an expression of grief or sorrow over something or someone. Seventy percent of the psalms are psalms of lament, whether individual or corporate. And what that tells us is God wants his people to cry out to And he wants them to do that in times of grief and in sorrow. And not only that, God wants us to join with others as they cry out before the Lord. The psalms help us do that, especially psalms of lament, especially Psalm 3 that we'll look at this morning. Well, what I want us to see then is that Psalm 3 gives us this wonderful pattern for lamenting. You might call it a beginner's lament Um, because uh, while this one certainly is lament, there are others that you encounter in the Psalter that seem to be much darker. I would draw your attention to Psalm 88. We'll bring that up a couple times in this sermon. But this psalm kind of takes a beginner's approach to a crisis that David was in and gives us this wonderful pattern for how to think about laments and lamenting in our lives. And that's all I want to show you this morning. I'll be relying heavily on Dr. Jack Collins, one of my favorite seminary professors and Old Testament professors from seminary. And here are the three things that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at what David sees. We're going to look at what David knows. And we're going to look at what David finds. And you could substitute yourself for that. What do you see? As the pattern of lament, first, what do you see? What do you know? What do you find? So Let's take that first one. What do you see? What does David see? And this will take up verses 1 and 2 for us. The first step in lamenting. According to this psalm, is naming the things that are in front of you. What do you see? What is causing you grief this morning? What is causing you sorrow? What is causing you distress or fear? Because by naming it, we know what to cry out to the Lord with. It's kind of that simple. For David, naming is easy in this psalm, right? This psalm, we are told, is a response to 2 Samuel 15, when David's own son, Absalom, concocts a plan— to take over his own father's kingdom and to send Israel after David, because now Absalom is the rightful king. And this forces David, God's anointed, on the run again, wondering if this is the end of his life. And while he's on the run, he is also scolded, if we remember, by a man named Shimei, that causes David to consider if his actions in the past perhaps primarily thinking about his actions with Bathsheba. If those things, if his sins have has actually caused God to remove his hand from him. And verses 1 and 2 are David's recording of what he sees, what is in front of him. There's the betrayal and loss of a son who is now trying to kill him. And there's a kingdom now that doesn't in one sense belong to him. And now there are all of these supporters of Absalom, quote, rising up against him. If we look, though, a little closer here at what David sees, we we see that he is being hit in the areas of life that hurt the most. Primarily family and calling, or profession, if you want to be more plain about it. The very things that would make up much of David's personal identity, places that he would find his own worth and value are being taken away. And you can almost hear him as he's running through the hills here. Why is my son Absalom turning against me? Why is he trying to kill me? God, why am I the king of Israel whom you anointed now without a kingdom anymore? Who am I if I don't have my family and if I don't have my kingdom? Tragedy, friends, tends to come to us when the things that we love are either taken away or the places we find the most comfort in this world are threatened. If I were to lose any of my family, certainly a part of me would be gone. And I would assume the most for you as well. I've been involved in some type of organized ministry for more than half of my life now, and I'm not sure how I would feel or if I would know what to do or who I was. If tomorrow I woke up and I was no longer to serve the pulpit, I'm sure your calling as well when that is perhaps potentially taken from you or a change of life, a season of life calls us in a different direction. We're, we're, we're not really sure who we are. All of us have these things in life that make up much of who we are, and when they are threatened or even taken away, tragedy, as we say, has struck. And what do you do when that happens? This is what the psalm is guiding us through. What do you do when that happens? Well, Scripture directs God's people to lament, to cry out before him. But there's actually something worse going on here that I want to draw our attention to before we leave this first point. Something worse going on here for David. You'll notice that in verse 2, David is being told that there is, quote, no salvation for him and God. In other words, not only has his son betrayed him, not only are uh, foes, right, his own, once we were his own people, not only are they trying uh, to kill him, but they are telling him that God is also against him too. Martin Luther is quoted saying, all the temptations in the world and in hell too, melted together into one, are nothing compared with the temptation to To despair of God's mercy. It's one thing to have earthly things taken away from us for sure, but to consider that God's hand has been removed from you as well, that is what we might say next level despair. But that's exactly where David goes. That's exactly uh, what he feels like God allows him the privilege to be able to go before him and lay down what is most raw what is most um, just difficult in his life to consider. This is what he's been told. This is what he sees. This is what's in front of him. And this is what the Bible instructs us to do, to be honest about what is troubling us. The Bible invites us, right, to be honest about where we are suffering and doubting even. The Bible invites us uh, and asks us to take what we see in front of us and to cry out to the Lord with it, no matter how dark it might be. In Psalm 88, the psalmist accuses God of hiding his face to him. Do you feel like that that's appropriate? That you have the ability to to be as honest as some of these writers are to God? I think it's wonderful that the Bible invites us to do this. But you know what allows, not just psalms like Psalm 3 or Psalm 88, you know what allows the writers to do this? You know why they're able to be as honest? It's because they are convinced and know of the commitment of God to them. And this takes us back to Psalm 1, right? Remember that gateway of understanding that that, that God has essentially promised himself to you. And it's in that context that we go into the Psalter to be as honest um, as we can about life and life experiences. And what this also tells us is that, it, and I should say it reminds us, that grief and sorrow, as we experience it in different forms and fashions in this life, that is not God's punishment to you. Let me be very clear about that. It's not God's punishment for something you didn't do this week or something you, know, or, or something you did do. You didn't do it in the, in the, in the right way. We live in a fallen and we live in a broken world. And because of our sin, it's it's a consequence of that oftentimes of our hearts. And God and his kindness gives us a way to cry out and lament about both the things that happen to us that may seem out of our control, but also things that happen to us because, well, we're part of it. It's everything in between. But this is the first step, right? It is simply naming what you see, what is in front of you. And the Bible is inviting you to put that on paper, to put it out into space, as it were, to confess it, to say it, to be honest about it. But thankfully, this is not where we are left. And this gets to the second point. This is what David knows. What would be the point of simply crying out? Right? And there might be some uh, here, or not, not necessarily here in this room, but some in our, our culture today that say, well, this is a, a really good exercise in therapy. And maybe it is, right? But that is not what is uh, in view here in Psalm 3. David has just said what he sees, but then look at verse 3. He immediately turns to what? To what he knows, saying, But you, but you, Lord, you are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. One of the things most scholars agree upon is that David did not write this as he was on the run from Absalom. Rather, he most likely wrote it afterwards upon reflection over this time. So some of the things that he is able to say come directly from the experience here. But some of the things he says come from remembering who God is and who God says that he is from his word. Like this, like how God is a shield, something we've been using and saying a lot throughout this service. Genesis 15:1 of all places, the call of Abram. One of the first statements to Abram in chapter 15 is this, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Here is God calling Abram and his family to do something very important, but very, very hard. Right? He was asking them to leave their hometown and come to a place that God would show them. Like, it wasn't like, hey, go from D.C. to Baltimore. Like, we know where we're going. It was like, hey, come follow me, but I don't even, I'm not telling you where you're going just now. You don't know where you're going to land. Oh, by the way, go convince your family that I'm not crazy and come with me. That was what he told Abram. If any of your family came home and said, hey, pack up the things, we're leaving, you would say, where are we going? I don't know, but come with me. You probably wouldn't go. This is what God was asking Abram to do. And that's why he starts out there, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. David clearly draws from this as he reflects back on his challenging circumstances, remembering that God is a shield to his people. And he protects them because he's the one who makes what promises to his people and keeps them just like he did to Abram. In other words, here's the the point. By reflecting on Scripture, what David knows, what is true, David is able to move from what he sees to what he knows, which is what is true, which is where his confidence and peace comes from. And this is the point of lament. It isn't just therapeutically to get it out. It is actually to get it out in one sense so that we can see what's there, but then reminded of what's true. Notice also that David says that God is his glory. This is very interesting because in this day and age, and even today, right, what, would, what would be David's glory other than his family and his kingdom? But here, David seems to have realized something, right? The things of this earth, as fickle as they can be, right, are no place to seek or to find glory. Only in serving and belonging to God himself, that is everlasting glory. That's where it's found. In other words, through this trial, David recognized that security and worth could not be found in family and his kingship, but only in God alone. And I, I leave that in here because I don't think David was looking for this type of help as he was on the run from those many foes and from his son. The psalm tells us that God doesn't always answer David immediately, doesn't always answer our prayers immediately, nor as David wishes, nor sometimes as we wish, but his timing is always perfect And what he has to show David, as reflected in this psalm, is much bigger than a cry to what remove him from his circumstances. Honestly, if you think about it, what is more important here at this point, to be removed from your circumstances where life could be perhaps a little better, a little more comfortable or whatever, or to be shown that you are looking to the wrong things for security and worth that could have eternal consequences? This is what it means for him to find in the Lord, for him to be his glory. So what is the psalm teaching us at this point? Well, it's actually saying that what we see is often more powerful to us in the moment than what we know. What we see, right, our feelings, our emotions, right, which are good, good things, right, they can get the best of us. And if we just let what we see, right, what we feel tell us what is true, right, we will have no rest or peace in the midst of circumstances. In college, I did some kayaking and one trip. I took a friend who had never done this before and thought it'd be a good time to uh, to teach him whatever it is that I know about kayaking, which isn't much. And so we were going on this river and, and the section of the river was, was nothing dangerous. There was one uh, the, the biggest rapid would be a class 3 at the very end. Um, and if it had rained a lot, especially like it rained last night, it could, it could get to a class 4. But as we got to the end, we had a, we had a great time, and as we got to the end, about ready to do this, this final rapid, the biggest rapid of the day, you've got to kind of get out and look at it and talk about it. And the, the key to this rapid is that you've got to hit it with speed, right? You, you can't You can't just kind of creep up to it and fall into it. And the reason for that is because, as rapids do, it creates a hole or a hydraulic. As that water comes down over uh, a rock and creates a falls, it drives into the, the, the riverbed, pulling other water with it, creating this circular motion. And if you don't hit that rapid with enough speed, you get pulled right into the hole. Now, if the hole's big enough, I mean, this is where people die. But that wasn't going to happen here, right? This is just a small little section of the river, and uh, we're having a good time. And so I go first, and of course, I nail it. No surprise. Um, But as I got down, turned around, and waited for my buddy to come, I just knew immediately this was going to be bad. Because he didn't hit it with speed, right? He just crept up to it. So much so that his boat just sort of almost hangs over the the rapid as I'm visualizing this now, and it drops literally right in the hole. And so immediately it spins his boat around and flips him upside down, which isn't all too bad. It just means he's probably not going to be able to get himself out. He's got to bail, and we're going to have to go find this kayak down the river at some point. Well, he does bail, but he doesn't surface. And uh, to just leave, you know, to put it mildly, to say we weren't concerned after. Seconds turned into what seemed like minutes. Um, that would be an understatement. But about 30 y- yards down the river, he finally pops up, gasping for air. And he would tell you that there was a moment there where he thought this was it. Now, why do I tell this story? Well, you've, you've got to know what happened to him. And if you've done any river running, you'll know, you'll know what I'm about to say. Because of this hole, right, the hydraulic that I explained, you actually have to swim down in order to get out of it. But when you hit that water, that's 48 degrees, and you flip over in a boat that you're strapped to, you kind of lose all recognition of what's true, of what is the right thing to do. And when he bailed and that water kept coming down on top of him, all he wanted to do was just get to the surface. Swim, swim, swim. But that's literally like going against the entire stretch of the river above him. You you will never make it out that way. Thankfully, the way he describes it, in about a split second, after trying so hard to get to the surface, he remembered to swim down. As he would put it, he remembered the physics of the river. And he would swim down, and sure enough, as he swam down, going in the complete opposite direction of everything that his body and his mind was telling him to do, the water, the river, pushed him out. What we see, right, what what our emotions tell us and experience is often way more powerful than what we might know in the moment. But just because our emotions are telling us something, and again, our emotions are good, good things. Let me make sure I say that again. But just because they're telling us one thing, it doesn't mean that it's true. It doesn't mean that it's good. While there are a ton of application points for what I just said, what the psalm is telling us is that in order to find comfort and even confidence as we navigate the distresses and sorrows and griefs of life, in order to find confidence, as we'll see, we must be anchored to what is objectively true. We must turn to what we know, even if it means persuading ourselves at times. No, no, no. This is the right direction to go. This is the right way to go. And I'm sure David had to do that at times as he was faced with what was in front of him. But friends, the Bible assumes that the world is going to come at you with the unexpected. It's why, again, 70% of the Psalter are psalms of lament. It assumes that this is going to happen. It assumes, right, that that, that tragic events are going to come into place. Uh, that much of the human experience, even, is us asking, "Why is this happening?" And while nothing, as we saw last week, is a surprise to God, as we trust in His sovereignty, though what He allows and why is often a mystery to us, He doesn't leave us ill-equipped. Instead, what the psalm says is is what are you anchored to in times of distress? What has the power and ability to secure you when, to be cliche about it, the storms of life are surrounding you and all you believe is what you see? What David is anchored to in this text is the word of God, his promise. And in the midst of his circumstances, that would make any of us wonder if God was really uh, for us, such as the circumstances that David found himself in. He is reminded of what is true. Life for David is not found in being removed from his circumstances, and this is the point. It's found in being reminded that God truly what is his shield, regardless of what he sees, regardless of what he's experiencing, that he is the author and protector of his life, both now but also in eternity. And this gets to my last point, which is a lot shorter. This leads him then into what he finds. And this is, this is the pattern of the lament. This is where it takes us. Verses 5 and 6 say this, I lay down and slept. That's past tense, right? I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Past tense. Verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Future tense. So God was a shield in this moment for David, as he says, and he woke up. Um, or sorry, and he sustained him and he gave him rest. But notice where this leads him. It's not out of his troubling circumstances, but with renewed confidence to stand in them. And this is the real power of the all. David did not say, I lay down, slept and woke and found myself uh, reconciled, my brother and my kingship restored. Rather, he woke up with his circumstances unchanged, but with a renewed confidence to face them in it. the Psalms then, as one scholar notes, become that intersection of times, right? It is finding God's presence in the midst of your circumstances. And that intersection of times is our time and God's time but the then, the now, and the not yet, he says. And to recognize this is to understand how these emotions are to be held within the rhythm of a life, lived in the presence of God. In other words, David didn't need God to grant a wish for him, which is sometimes what we think when we're in trouble or distress and we pray. What he needed was to know God was with him in the midst of it. And when our emotions overrun us and we get stuck in the the horizontal of life, as it were, that all that's there is me and my problems and circumstances, the Bible is saying that is actually not true. What The Psalms do what lamenting brings us back into is the reality of the presence of God, that intersection of times that he is with you, even if you don't feel like he is even when your son has usurped your authority in your own kingdom and is trying to kill you, even when you have many foes surrounding you, God has not left you. He is your shield. And so I ask, what are you honestly seeking when you pray to God? When you cry out to him, as this lament is encouraging us to do? Is it for him to give you something, to grant you a wish, as it were? Or is it something better, like reminding you of his presence and promise to you in the midst of these circumstances? Something that can't be taken away from you ever. Something that will not fail you no matter what. Now, here is the best part. What David knew as he turned his eyes to God, right, what he found, his shield, his glory, he only knew in part. And What David knew in part, you now know this minute in full. And what is that, friends? It is the anchor that is God's love in Jesus Christ. Where David looked forward to the fulfillment of God's promises, you have Jesus, the fulfillment of those promises, as the anchor that tells you what's true in every single station of life. And what is that? What is true? Jesus is with you, both in this life and in death, and that he loves you. And how we know that objectively, why we call that our anchor, as it were, is the cross of Christ. The cross tells us that nothing what will keep God from you, not your sin, not even death, but it also tells how much God loves you because he's willing to what? To give himself for you. And in his death, his blood makes you clean. It forgives you of all of your sins so that you will have a share with him in eternity. And you know what that is. That is a shield. That is your shield in this life and the next. And when we sing this song, that's what we own. That's what we believe. That's how it shapes us. You want security in this world? We all do. Run to the cross. Run to Jesus. You want value and worth? Friends, look at his hands. Look at his feet. Look at his side. You were worth the suffering he bore. You want God's presence in times of distress and grief and sorrow that are coming that they haven't yet you in this life, look at Christ who tells you, I am with you always. That's your shield. That's your glory. No matter what we see in this life, would we turn to what we know, what is true, and find the presence of Christ at every single turn. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm, and we thank you for giving us such good insight into David's circumstances. I I think that if we didn't have this written down, we would not believe that your anointed, King David, went through such sorrow and grief and distress. Yet these are the words that he was able to come to In the midst of those circumstances, and even after, as he reflects back on your faithfulness, would we learn to share in that as we own the Psalms for ourselves, that you are a shield? And where do we see that uh, in its ultimate sense in Jesus Christ, who is our protector, who is our hedge around us, as it were, who because of his blood has made us clean, we We'll never have to worry about whether or not we will be alone or whether or not God will cast us away from his presence if we are in Christ. We know that we are with him always. When we look to that, Would we see him as our true anchor, what is true in times of distress and sorrow and grief, we learn to lament We pray this for your glory alone. Amen.